Hello. Welcome to Cranket Commentaries. I am Jake. Hello. As always, I am joined by my good friend, Keaton Byer. And today, we are covering the 1986 classic, The Fly. <laughs> this, this film's fucking gross. Um, there's no way around that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty classic Cronenberg, you know. Yeah, which is disgusting. Yeah, and I mean, this is probably one of the less disturbing Cronenberg movies, to be honest. Yeah, but you know, I still found myself like watching it, like squirming. Yeah, it's in like my I really want to like, up right now. This is like, really bad. <laughs> Just like, ah, oh, jeez, David, come on now. That's that's a bit much. I mean, it's not. It's. I mean, yeah, that scene where he, um, where he's eating the donuts. That first, yeah, that first that, the scene. First... It's, it's, it's... <laughs> oh god, it's so bad. Um, I think I think uh, that a major part of this film's legacy uh, is that you know it's kind of hard to watch because it's so gross. Um, yeah, I think a lot. It it, it certainly uh, makes you feel a certain way when you watch it. <laughs> it makes you yeah, yeah just feel awful on the inside there's <laughs> a pretty profound storyline yeah you know with a good amount of philosophical meditation you know yeah i mean there's a lot of different ways you can you can look at this uh this story and i mean there's a lot to it um but yeah i mean i would say like first and foremost it's a love story <laughs> I mean that brings you to to my first issue with the, this yeah. movie. Uh, I find Gina Davis's character to be pretty thin. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I, don't know. I think she, she brings to like, me. She doesn't. She doesn't seem to have. She doesn't seem to have any agency in the storyline. Like it just doesn't feel like she's just doesn't feel like a real character i don't know they just don't really give her any good reason for falling for brundle it just kind of seems like it's it seems inevitable yeah i mean yeah i can see that i don't know i suppose like how they get together is not really that important though like they just kind of needed to get it done so that they could you know i know but in doing that they kind of like you know sucked all the character out of her in a way right i, I mean i can see that just in, in, again about the fact that she doesn't really have any agency it just kind of immediately she's supposed to be this like you know strong headed reporter she's like an archetype you know straight from the beginning yeah i mean but like every character in this movie is an archetype that's true that's true <laughs> like i mean uh, we'll get that seth rundle we'll is like pretty stock character i guess they're all yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's not that many characters in this movie there's only really the three yeah really but, yeah matter the cast list is not long the cast list is like less than 10 or something yeah no it's not long at all um yeah i mean i guess they uh they definitely saved some money uh not having to hire many actors and you know used that money to great effect at building rubber things (laughs) indeed so should we uh as always should we go over some basic facts yeah let's uh let's 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 check out what we got here yeah so released um 15th of august 1986 um as we mentioned it's directed by a good old canadian legend um and a deeply disturbed individual uh david cronenberg david cronenberg yeah so um 
interesting fact that uh, that might come up. As you may or may not know, me and Keaton are from Toronto, and so yes. is David Cronenberg. In fact, yeah. we actually went to the same high school as David Cronenberg. Yes, we <laughs> which, did. Which uh, is interesting, yeah. Um, and they never talk about it. Like, the, the school absolutely doesn't talk about the fact that David Cronenberg went there. I think they're very ashamed of anyway, it. Anyway, yeah, there's a lot of Canadian a stuff lot of Canadian here because stuff. We're, we're Canadians. We're definitely going to obsess over yeah. it. So It, it is our duty. But yeah, back to the basic facts. This is, it's, a, it's a remake of the 1958 uh, Vincent Price, Patricia Owens film of the same name, um, which we'll talk about a bit more in a little okay. bit. Um, it's starring, the best way I could figure to describe him is an old thespian wizard <laughs> that is that is a good way of describing it i mean not at the time but now that kind of just seems like what he is um jeff goldblum yeah uh who i love how can you not <laughs> <laughs> we also have gina davis uh who is best known for her role as uh, mrs little in Stuart little Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess that's that's maybe yeah. And uh, filling out the love triangle, we have a uh, John Getz as Strathis, Strathis Borans, which is quite a name. Yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a. I've, he, they really make it easy. To really dislike this guy. Yeah, he's a fucking... Sh like, they, they really make you cheer when his hand gets dissolved. Yeah, yeah but yet he somehow becomes, like, the hero. It's such a bizarre... <laughs> well, kind of, yeah. I mean, he does, kind like... Of. Yeah, he, he does. does. He does. Like, the only reason that... He does save, uh... Um... Ronnie, Gina Davis' yeah, character. Yeah. And... and, like, they become, like... But, yeah. As, you know... Uh, as Brundle becomes more of the brundle fly like their their yeah. relationship um ronnie and uh strathis becomes like less and less antagonistic as like you know as the film progresses yeah um yeah uh de depending on who you ask because uh, <laughs> i couldn't really figure out exactly how much the film was made for anywhere between uh nine and fifteen million dollars Mm, do you think that might have to do with um, Canadian versus American? Ooh, that's true. I didn't Maybe. even think about that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because um, I don't, I don't know what the value of the Canadian dollar was in 1986, but that seems about. That seems about right. Yeah, that seems, seems like, like a reasonable somewhere about, somewhere about yeah. there, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, it grossed just over 60 million, which is which is pretty good. Not and, bad. Um, you know, and for a film of that. You know. Well, it was rated R, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, like that limits your audience a bit. And I'm not sure because uh, I didn't cross-reference it, but I, I I believe that makes it David Cronenberg's most successful film when it comes to profit margin. Okay, but interesting. I mean, you know, okay, I attribute that to the gold blue magic. The gold blue magic, yes. Yeah, as you should. <laughs> I mean, he, he should have won an Oscar. I don't know, maybe. I don't know for this movie. Should have, but he should have been nominated yeah, he, for an it's Oscar. It's fantastic for this movie. Yeah, he won a Saturn Award, but I don't think he was even. I mean, that's for not an Oscar. worth much, though. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have one? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got a fucking Saturn Award. 
um, so, so let's move on to the the, uh, the original fly and just talk about talk about the original fly a bit, just to get some background and context. Because I think it's right. I think it's it's important because you know it's a remake and and we can uh, we can kind of look at the differences in the story and just like you know right. the uh, at the time kind of more modern updates. I don't know. It's just I feel like context is is good for this yeah okay. um so before before the fly was uh a movie even it was a short story um and the short story was published published in playboy magazine in uh june of 1957 so the story is told from the perspective of francois delambre who's uh the brother of brilliant scientist andre delambre um the story set in france and the very general theme of the story is, is the same you got teleportation you have human fly hybrids and you have a horrified lover coming to terms with the idea that uh, the creature before them is no longer the person who they loved. Um, I think the major difference to note is that the original story is told like uh, retrospectively, uh, like Francoise Delambre is like recalling it after it's happened. Um, after like the human fly doesn't actually appear in the short story, it's all just like telling about what happened to him. Um, and then the the short story is more about like the madness of of Mrs. Delambre, his like the scientist's wife, and her kind mm. of descent into madness. Um, right. Um, so yeah, that it's a little bit different in the uh, in the uh, the film. How so? What do you mean? What what's different? Oh oh, just um, sort of the descent into madness is not exactly the same. <laughs> In the like original fly, it was in the uh, current. No, yeah, that's not. Yeah. They kind of like that's not really a, a an important detail in the Cronenberg. She doesn't even descend into madness per se. Like, I mean, no, I mean she's definitely like permanently scarred. <laughs> but like, yeah. Was, so I guess it's like arguably, arguably madness, but not in the same way. I think. Yeah. Um. Just strong emotional distress. Yeah, I mean, uh, some like in the original story, ultimately, uh, Miss Mrs. Delambre is forced to kill, um, kill in the same way, kill uh, the fly creature. Yeah. But then in the end, she commits suicide um, because she's gonna like spend the rest of her life in a in insane asylum. So that's pretty dark. Um, right. Yeah. That's very dark. But all in all, I found it the story to be a bit silly. <laughs> But yeah, it was a it was adapted to a movie pretty quickly, um, when uh, a producer named Kurt Newman uh, read the short story um, in Playboy during its July release. Um, right. So he uh, you know started the project. A screenwriter named uh, James Clavell uh, was hired to write the script. Um, interesting thing about his script is that they, uh, it was it was highly praised, with the producer saying that. Um, uh, it was the best first draft they had ever read. Oh, really? Um, that's that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> and it's also interesting that the same guy would go on to write, co-write, rather, the script for uh, The Great Escape in 1963. Oh. Hmm. Um, yeah, the turnaround was really quick. So the article was released in uh, July of 57. Mm -hmm. The movie was rele released in July of 58. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty quick turnaround to a movie. Um, the story is basically identical to the short story. Um, one of the weird liberties that they took, uh, though, was that they relocated the setting um, from France 
to Montreal. Ooh. Gets more so Canada another, in there, you know? It gets more Canada, yeah. yeah. I'm not exactly sure why they did that. Um, um, I don't know. Like, maybe they thought it would be because they all had French names and they and they wanted they thought it would be more digestible for american audiences really i don't know but i, I feel like americans probably wouldn't digest french canada anymore yeah, than exactly like, you know yeah France. i'm just like trying desperately trying to find a reason for why they did that yeah i don't know um i don't know yeah no i just think it's interesting because this was set in montreal and the uh and the 1986 movie is also set in canada yeah <laughs> It's kind of cool, actually, yeah. even though the short story was never... Canada's not Yeah, Canada's not mentioned at all in the short story. In the short story. But yet, Canada became very important. Yeah. Um, my favorite part of the movie is Vincent Bryce. Um, because Vincent he's Vincent Bryce. Bryce. Yes. <laughs> I, love, I love listening to him talk. Yeah, no, he's uh, one of a kind. I would listen to an audiobook of him just reading a phone book. I'm certain... I'm certain those exist. Of him reading a phone book? <laughs> oh, a phone book. Okay, no, I just I was just thinking Vincent Price audiobooks. That would be great, actually. I should look into that. Anyway. Um, uh, I'm sure he's done I one. mean, it was, like, like, pretty successful, I guess, for 1958 yeah. standards. It's really hard to kind of get an idea of what movies actually grossed around then, but as far as I can, like, g- glean, yeah. inflation it's... adjusted, it made about $3 million. Inflation adjusted to 2020, or inflation adjusted uh, to... Uh, to whenever that number was right, recorded. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so there were a couple of sequels, but um, we could, like the, the second one is just, you know, a normal sequel. I think it's like something like his son was in it. Like the, the Lombre's son, the scientist's son. Right. Does the same thing. You know, kind of boring shit. Um, yeah, as you would expect. And then, yeah, 1965, they did, like, a really low-budget, like, third installment that was, like, black and white when the rest of them oh, were geez. in color. And yeah. um, uh, that one, like, the plot is bizarre. Um, as far as I can tell, it features the sun, the sun again. But now he's progressed the teleportation tech to, like, intercontinental capabilities. Um, okay. But... It also failed like a bunch of times, and there's like an insane asylum full of horribly disfigured test Oof. subjects. Huh. So like, I don't know, that sounds kind of cool. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. It's uh, sort of the fate of uh, such 50s movies that, you know, eventually they get uh, worse and worse as the sequels happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's kind of the same with most movies. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Fifties movies, they just kind of decline. I mean, we'll talk about sequels a bit more because sequels. Yeah, there there were actually sequels to this one. Yes, and David Cronenberg has always been very opposed to sequels, kind of vocally. Mm. Um, but we'll get to all that. Um, so. Anyway, I, thought, I just thought it was kind of interesting to get an idea for the vibe um, and production of the original. Just a bit of context, but we can move on now um, okay. to our actual topic today, the 1986 remake, um, which is definitely a much more compelling story about how it was made than the <laughs> yeah uh, than the original one. So, it's, I mean, yeah, it's also sometimes harder to get the details about movies from back then. Yeah, yeah, and I think I kind of lucked out. Yeah? 
for this one just because you know it's kind of a cult film in a lot of ways mm. it is and it isn't it's like one of those films that like kind of hovers on like um the line a bit yeah definitely because i mean like you have some like it has some bigger actors in it or at least i guess they they became bigger actors after this movie mostly I would yeah say. i mean but, they were, um, there was they were fairly big they were the well time, known enough to uh yeah, yeah like, to sell the movie i guess yeah but yeah so it, it was like reasonably successful when it came out and now it's uh it was compelling enough to get i guess a lot of uh in a way that like i mean most of his films sort of become cult films i would say yeah that's he's just a cult director basically it's like uh, john carpenter yeah although i I would say that um critically i think uh cronenberg's movies are taken more seriously than uh um carpenter for whatever reason well yeah i think i think cronenberg he I, i i think he certainly uh took a more artistic approach to it than i think carpenter did yeah, and he he at least puts on like more of like um an air of of intellectualism about his films than Carpenter ever ever yeah, bothered ever to cared to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, part of that could come down to I think Carpenter just like doesn't like interacting with like the public. Yeah, that's true. As Cronenberg maybe doesn't as much as well, but I, he definitely likes talking about. Based on the interviews I've watched with him, he likes talking about his movies conceptually yeah definitely uh although an interesting uh another comparison between those two is that apparently neither of them like to watch their movies yeah yeah which is a weird thing i can't i can't imagine not wanting to like i i understand why because they don't want to see the like in their head it's it's the innards of the movie and like all the things that it took to put it together so they can't really see through it yeah you can't see it for what it is but it's like um i don't know i feel like i i would still find it enjoyable but i don't know yeah no if i was like if i was like an actor i would not want to i would not want to watch a movie but if i was like a director maybe i'd much more be interested in like seeing how it turned out because you got this vision and you want to see if it especially you know I mean, I'm sure that he, like, watched them. Well, I mean, they have seen it, but they're not just gonna, like, obviously they've Throw seen it. Throw it on. Yeah. They're not gonna just <laughs> Yeah, watch actually, it. in one of the interviews I was watching, he was doing, like, an interview about the, f- uh, a Q&A about The Fly. Yeah, and he had just I think said, I probably yeah, watched I that s- same one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He said, I haven't seen it in 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird, weird to <laughs> That's say. That's a good interview. Um, yeah, it was actually interesting. I, uh, I actually saw an interview somewhere with um it was john carpenter uh um john carpenter david cronenberg and uh john landis all in the same interview i don't know i don't oh, that's pretty what cool. it was for but it's interesting yeah what <laughs> i mean i guess it kind of makes sense altogether. yeah yeah i mean they all kind of made horror movies Similar. in the early 80s yeah yeah i no, mean landis totally made other movies as well but yeah <laughs> all right so 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 let's move on to to um the pre-production portion of our our fly story but before we go on i just want to mention uh that most of the stuff in this next bit um comes from some great interviews in a movie called fear of the flesh the making of the fly um (laughs) 
Do you like that title? Yeah, I like that title. I think you like. I don't know. You, you should watch the whole movie. It's it's. Yeah, I, I watched some of it, but I, I didn't get a chance to see the whole thing. But there were some interesting bits. It's clearly a movie with its own mo. Yeah. Um, like the way they edit some things together, and the way they're like they feel like they're trying to bounce people's interviews off each other. Like, oh, this person says one thing, and then this person says something slightly conflicting. Right. I don't know. They just they just clearly like they're trying to make it make a narrative or uh yeah yeah um but but the interviews are really good um and that's basically where i got most of the details for the next okay. bit so our story starts um in the early 1980s um interestingly uh it was again the short story and not the uh, 1958 movie which served as the inspiration for the remake right um yeah, a guy named Kip Omen. Um, he was working as like a manager. He found the short story, um, and he brought it to one of his clients, who is a guy whose name you might recognize uh, because it's in the credits for the film. Is a guy named Charles Edward Pogue. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, I do. Recognize yes. that. He this his whole relationship with this film is just weird as we will find out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, Pogue was the guy who wrote the first draft, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He wrote several drafts. Okay. In non chronological order. Mm. Um, so, but basically Kip Omen knew that Fox still owned the film rights to the short story. Yeah. Um, and he also knew that Pogue um, had a few connections to like the upper echelons of Fox for whatever okay. reason. And I, he couldn't, didn't really explain why. He like, right. like met his agent through like the wife of one of the Fox executives. I don't know. All right. Um, but basically, it all started when Kip Omen was like, "This needs to be remade into a movie." Um, who do I who do I know that has an in with Fox? Charles Edward Pogue. Okay. So basically, Charles Edward Pogue got this role because he had an in at Fox. You know, that's how uh, a lot of things happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, just networking. Exactly. That's Hollywood, baby. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely yeah, gonna cut that out. <laughs> what? <laughs> Me saying that's Hollywood. That's Hollywood, baby. baby. Um, no, you leave it in. Um, so basically it seems that at this point Kip Omen takes his co-production credit and uh, hands the reins to Pogue okay um, so we're gonna, now we're going to meet a few uh, familiar characters Pogue takes the uh, idea to a producer named Stuart Kornfeld um, do you remember his name at all? not at all not at all. Well, are I we believe... sure we've? <laughs> yeah, sure we've seen him before. Yeah, yeah. No, I believe we mentioned him briefly in the Zoolander episode. Um, okay. Very briefly, because right. he's the uh, he's the future business partner of Ben Stiller. Okay. Um, in their production company, Red House Productions. Interesting. Interesting connection there. So, but Kornfeld had recently um, co-produced, not that recently, but a few years ago, co-produced The Elephant Man. Right. Um, and he brought the project uh, and David Lynch to 
Mel Brooks, who produced that film. Right. And we will talk more about Mel Brooks. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Mel Brooks's connection to this movie. Yeah, it's I, when I found out that Mel Brooks produced this movie, I was pretty surprised to be honest. Well, yeah, I, I mean, not... he was like specifically not credited for uh, for reasons basically <laughs> having to do with you know people probably wouldn't take the movie seriously if they knew Mel Brooks's name was on it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like you don't you you don't go to a Mel Brooks movie expecting like you know that (laughs) expecting this expecting Jeff Goldblum to vomit sludge onto somebody's fucking hand and then it the hand okay the the dissolving maybe but I mean I could imagine Jeff Goldblum vomiting goo in a in a a Mel Brooks Brooks movie. movie. Fair enough, actually. It's not that far afield. Um. Yeah, anyway, uh, Kornfeld loved the idea for the movie, so he, uh, he took it to Fox, um, who fronted the money for, for Pogue to write a screenplay. And, you know, the original outline, uh, it, was, it was more accurate um, to the original story than right. the film ended up being. Um, yeah, because I know Cronenberg like, changed quite a few things when he wrote his yeah. copy. Yeah, and we'll we'll find out when he enters exactly how much he changed. And right. we will actually kind of get to the bottom of the writing credit thing in a bit. Right. Yeah, he like in his in his like original version like the uh the basically it was the same thing but that like the names were 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 different. The relationships were the same as the original story. Um but they he had just kind of updated everything to be like uh like genetic um dna component and like computers and you know all right. 1980s um and he also i think he kind of like had more of he started to kind of introduce the slow burn aspect of it as opposed to in the original story it's like a a pretty instant transition i think yeah yeah cuz i mean like basically in the original it's like they switch heads, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. They like they switch heads, and it's kind of implied that like um, they're both half man, half yeah. fly. Right. And then there's there's like a scene where like this um uh this detective who's been like trying to crack the case and figure out what happened, he he murders the um, well he kills the fly creature. The, the one that's like got a, a human head right um and yeah. then vincent price is like but you're just as much of a murderer as she is don't yeah. you see you've yeah. killed the, the half man half fly and it was half anyway yeah. <laughs> um so that's the original po- pogue outline was yeah more similar to that mm. um so they brought it back to fox um who were not happy with the results Right. In fact, not only did they refuse to make the film, they were also like, we're not, you can't make this film elsewhere. We're not going to give you the rights to it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I don't know what that says about the script, but they went from like enthusiasm to like, no fucking way. Are we letting you make this film? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was just something in there that was like really controversial. Maybe. Like, I mean, Although what ended up coming to the screen had, had to some very controversial, controversial aspects, I'm sure it had to have been more. The Cronenberg treatment had to have been more. Yeah, it must. I I don't see how you could have been like less controversial than Cronenberg's version. 
Yeah. Um, according to Cornfeld, he, uh, he, um, have I been calling him Cornfield? It's very similar, Cornfield, <laughs> Cornfeld. Because I, I find myself reading it as Cornfield sometimes, but his name is yeah. Cornfeld. Um, yeah, Cornfeld. He, he pestered, and this is quote unquote in his own words, he pestered Fox relentlessly um, until they agreed to at least just distribute the film um, if they could secure funding for it elsewhere. Right. Wait, okay, so what's Fox doing? They're just distributing the film? At this point, Fox is like, yeah, we'll distribute the film, but we're not going to pay for the production. Right, but they're also going to let them, they're just going to let them do the rights. Yeah, you can have yeah, okay. the rights, I guess, basically. Um, right. So, Kornfeld, you know, this is when we enters back in the old uh, EGOT achiever, Mel Brooks. Right. His, Mel Brooks is a character. Oh, yeah, so you can say that again. <laughs> um, the way that Cornfeld tells it, he uh, he brought the project to Mel Brooks on a Friday. Yeah. Um, and on a Monday, uh, he gets a call from Brooks where yeah. he's just screaming into the phone um, about how stupid the idea is and how bad the idea is. Um, he was not not happy about the idea. Hated the script. Um, and in a meeting between uh, Mel Brooks and Pogue. Um, this is great. Apparently, Brooks kept describing Pogue's uh, dialogue as badinage. What? What does that mean? Badinage. It's a great word. I had to look it up. It means, <laughs> yeah. it means okay. playful or frivolous repartee or banter. Oh, okay. So it's actually a great word. Yeah. And like super descriptive of what that script may have been like. Hmm. But Kornfeld urged Brooks to finish reading the script because he noted that most of uh, Brooks's problems uh, were things that took place in the first 10 pages. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty clear he didn't read the script. Yeah. So this next bit is, is decidedly different, depending on who's telling the story. Okay. Either way, both stories end with Pogue basically getting fired. Okay. So, according to Pogue, um, there was a power struggle. <laughs> a power struggle? A power struggle, yes. <laughs> this guy's Pogue's super dramatic, if you watch yeah. any of the interviews with him from the movie. He's like, the way he talks, he talks very dramatically. But yeah, he says there was like a power struggle between Brooks and Kornfeld, and uh, Pogue basically got like pushed out because he was uh, quote-unquote Kornfeld's guy. Okay. <laughs> but according to Kornfeld, it was notably less dramatic than that. He he says Cornfeld says that once Brooks finished reading the script, he wanted in, but he just he just didn't he didn't like the script and he wanted to bring in a new writer. Right. Okay. Odd. So, <laughs> uh, so is yeah. this kind of what you're talking about in the documentary, where they like cut the two interviews back and forth? Exactly. Yeah. They they were really trying to play it off one another. Yeah. And they did that sort of thing a lot, where they feel like felt like they were trying to play people off of each other, which like kind of bothered me a bit, but. There was good information in it. Yeah. So the new writer that they hired was a guy named Waylon Green. Okay. Um, who won an Oscar in 1970 for his screenplay for The Wild Bunch. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, so, you know, Oscar winner. That's, you know, good person to hedge your bets on. Yeah. But by all accounts, his treatment was a, a step in the wrong direction. And uh, <laughs> and I okay. don't think he got a writing credit in the end. He was out. Right. Um, and then it gets kind of confusing, but basically it seems like they hired Pogue back pretty quickly. And he was, like, again doing treatments. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they fired him for, like, you know, creating a badinage script. Yeah. And then I guess they figured who no they're not gonna find they brought on another guy and then they hired Pug back. Yeah, exactly. Okay. They brought on another guy, it didn't work out, and they hired Pug back. I really don't know. There must have been some there must be yeah. more to that story than than, right. than they're telling. Um But anyway, Pogue's back and uh Kornfeld started shopping around for directors. Right. Um his first choice was David Cronenberg. Hmm. The Bergster appears. The Burger, yes. Unfortunately, though, at the time, the Burger uh, was deep, uh, deep in the uh, production for Total Recall. <laughs> yeah, I, I find that funny that he was gonna direct Total Recall because, like, you, if you watch the actual movie, you can definitely see like a lot of things in there. Like, yeah, I think Cronenberg would have would have done this. Would have done great with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they ended up. Uh, picking Paul Verhoeven who did his thing with it which was like you know solid it's yeah it's it's an entertaining movie I haven't seen yeah. it in a while I remember enjoying it but yeah there's definitely a lot of a lot of rubber in that movie <laughs> so you know there is indeed yeah um I mean like there's a very like cronenberg bit with uh sort of the dude who's inside the other dude's stomach oh yeah right yeah so it's that's like, a yeah. very Cronenbergy bit. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I'm not really surprised that that uh, that Cronenberg was one of the guys being considered for that. He wasn't only being considered; he was like actively working on it at yeah, the time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually like, working on he it. He was yeah. hired. He was the director of the movie at the time. Right. Okay. Before they hired, uh, the first director they hired was a guy named Robert Bierman. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I don't think so. Because uh, his best known film is probably a movie called The Vampire's Kiss. Ah, I see. You know that movie? <laughs> I do know that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cage. Yep. It's an early Nick Cage movie, 1989, I think. But yeah, Bierman, like, his, in his, his interview, he was, like, really enthusiastic about the movie. Um, but obviously... We all know that David Cronenberg directed the film. Yes, as he was destined to. Yeah, exactly. It was destiny. <laughs> uh, the short explanation just is that early on in his contract, tragically, Bierman lost his daughter in an accident, and the production was put on hold for two months while Brooks and Kornfeld let Bierman decide if he wanted to go ahead with the film. Right. Um... Yeah, and ultimately he decided he couldn't give it the attention he thought it deserved, uh, so they release him from his contract. Right. Uh, with like Fair you know, enough. No, no hard feelings and all that, obviously. At this point, uh, according to Kornfeld, at this point in the production, things were going very badly. Mm. Um, as, as Kornfeld put it, uh, this, is, this is a quote. He said, We had a flawed script, no director, 
a tainted kind of vibe on the movie because of this horrible tragedy and certain business deals that had gone through because of the configuration of Brooks films committing to get the movie and then Fox saying they would do it. It was a horrible mess. So he shows a little bit. There's yeah, that sounds uh, like a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of also like sheds light on the fact that maybe there was some like uh, issues between Brooks films and Fox. But I couldn't really, I didn't see anything else on that. Right. Like maybe once Brooks Film signed on, Fox maybe changed their mind and were like, actually, we do want to make the movie. Yeah. But anyway, at this point, we have reached the Cronenberg portion of the story. We're not going to do, we're not going to do the deepest of dives into Cronenberg. um, Because I'm sure we'll come back to him later. Yeah. But, but for the purpose of context, let's just, let's just take a, a, a quick biographical look at Cronenberg. I think... I was, like, honestly, growing up, I was never an enormous fan of his. Yeah, uh, I feel like I hadn't watched a ton of his movies when I was younger, probably because they were so scarring. For obvious reasons, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, yeah, even when, like, in my, <laughs> as a teenager, I didn't like... I mean, as we've talked about on the show, I was never, like, a huge horror-slash-body-horror fan. Yeah. It's more yeah. recently I've started to kind of get into that sort of thing. Not really get into it specifically, but, you know. <laughs> You're getting really into body horror. Yeah, that's, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, I've been getting really into body horror. Uh, no, I've just been actually watching it as opposed to not watching it. Um, yeah. Though I did see uh, his 1991 film, Naked Lunch. Yes. What a what a movie! What a fucking movie! Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's based uh, based loosely on that the William S. Burroughs novel. I mean, you you have to take some liberties if you're trying to turn that into a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty disturbing, <laughs> as I recall. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, as as we mentioned at the start, Cronenberg's a good old Canadian boy. Um, good old Canadian yeah, boy, born right here. Toronto, Ontario. Yeah, um, actually, I was watching an interview with him, and I, I thought it was interesting because he was talking about like you know growing up in uh, basically Little Italy, which is where I grew yeah. up as well. But um, uh, he was talking about uh, he's like, yeah, I used to go to a, a theater. It was called the Pylon. I think now it's called the Royal. Oh man, the Royal. And it's like, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's just, the Royal, which is a great theater here in Toronto. Now they here show, Toronto College Street, right on yeah College. Uh, College Street, uh, and basically they they show a lot of like older movies now and indie movies. It's it's a really cool cool spot. So like, good place to go see a Cronenberg film. Yeah, good place to go see a Cronenberg. Uh, unfortunately, they are closed right now because of the 2020 uh, issues that we are all having. Um, so yeah, so when we are once again able to go to the Royal. Uh, if you find yourself in Toronto, you go know, to the Royal. Might want to check it out. It's a great, great yeah, spot. Great, great spot. As we mentioned, uh, he went to the same high school that we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why they don't. Why did they? Why they never mention that? Yeah. You know. You know they never brought him in for like uh, the. He never came to any of the. Uh, what should we call it? Uh, alumni. Uh, yeah, well, I actually, I think, I think I conveniently left out that he did go to two high schools. Um, so right. he may not have actually graduated from Harvard. 
you may have right. graduated from the other one but i um i chose not to include that <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's it's uh it's not that important no, no, and i don't i didn't <laughs> recognize the name of the other school so i figured which one I was don't it even remember it's like something academy or whatever i don't know or like north toronto academy something like that i don't know Oh, uh, okay. But yeah, um, after graduating, Cronenberg uh, attended the University of Toronto as a science student. I actually found it interesting. I think he was, uh, he was studying to be an entomologist, <laughs> which, uh, if you don't know what that is, that's somebody who studies bugs and insects. I'm shocked. Which is uh, very relevant to this film. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so I find that uh, it's kind of cool, though, that he has that... Uh, that background given the subject matter of his movies. Yeah, like, he, growing up, he was always interested in the sciences. He's, he did his first semester as a science student, but, but switched pretty, pretty quickly to English. Um, just, yeah, one semester. He said about being a scientist, in an interview, he said um, that being a scientist requires too much patience. <laughs> and doing a bunch of like boring repetitive shit for years before you can do anything interesting uh kind of sucks so instead he preferred to quote unquote make his own science mm. which he sort of did yeah like he uh i mean this is him him talking about himself so you know but he using concepts yeah. that would later be equated to stem cell research uh and the yeah. internet Wait, it, yeah. Do, do do you know which movie he's referring to? I, I don't remember that? which one he was talking about. Right, because there's a bit of stuff talking about like gene splicing and stuff in this movie, but they don't really get into that much detail. No, yeah, I don't think it was this one he was talking about. I, I think he also accused uh, Ridley Scott of ripping off Alien. From yeah, him. yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll we'll hear a bit more about Alien. I think there's a little bit of crossover. Um, yeah. but yeah, he did accuse, accuse the, the, them of stealing his, his idea. Yeah. I don't know how serious he was about that, but, uh, this is just something I heard. What is it? It's what, what movie was it again? Uh, was it Shivers? Shivers? That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a parasite that like lives in your stomach and then like, you know, bursts out of your chest yeah. or whatever and breeds in there. So, you know, there's, yeah, I haven't actually seen Shivers, so I don't know. No, I haven't actually seen it. Uh, but yeah, um, interestingly, I know he got apparently he got evicted from his apartment after making that movie. Shivers because there was like a morality clause in his lease, <laughs> and and the, his landlord was so offended by it that he kicked him out of his apartment. That is unreal. A morality clause. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Great. I, I I don't know how common those are anymore. I that, mean, I was just gonna say that sounds like some 1950s shit. Like I don't know. Yeah, I, I think this is why this was in the 70s, yeah, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, throughout the 1970s, he made you know, a bunch of films like that. Um, and many of his early films were made with grants from the Canadian government. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, Canada. I. Yeah, uh, I believe they were, he, what was the, he worked with a company called like Telefilm or something like that, which is a, um, basically, anyway, he worked uh, with, with the Canadian government, uh, basically using money from the Canadian government to make, uh, to fund some of his movies. 
but yeah, because uh, he was, he was, I think, thinking about like moving to Hollywood because he couldn't like get money to make his movies in Canada. Yeah. Right. And then he like uh, eventually like figured out how to how to secure get a grant and stuff, and then so now then he stayed in Canada. In 1979, uh, he made a film called Fast Company. Mm-hmm. Throughout his career and throughout the 70s, he was like kind of slowly assembling a crew that he would like work with on every movie. Yeah, and still does. Yeah, I believe. it's basically the same the same crew. Um, I think after the fly, some of them like come back, but like basically the 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 bare bones of the, of the crew is the same. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who cross over. Uh, yeah, and his crew describes him as like fiercely loyal. <laughs> they were like, "Yeah, we can expect a call from David once a year." Yeah, and this like kind of bare like this um, skeletal crew uh, included uh, editor Ronald Sanders. Uh, who worked on the fly production designer carol spire i think spear spire uh also worked on the fly and director of photography yep. uh mark Irwin uh also worked on the fly um and basically all the people in those department like in all those departments were like always hired back like all the cameramen all like the set designers like yeah i believe there's one more name there that uh you're missing you're talking about the the um the makeup <laughs> You're talking Sorry? about Chris uh, Wallace? Oh, no, I'm not actually, but him too. Who are you talking about? Well, you know, the music. Oh, yeah. Howie. <laughs> <laughs> Howard fucking Shore. Oh, yes. Another good old Canadian boy. Good old, good old Toronto boy, Howard Shore. Um, and he, he was... He did all the... Like, I don't remember what his first film was with... With Cronenberg. I think he, the first movie he did with Cronenberg was The Brood. Oh, really? That far back? Yeah, and then I think he did pretty much... Yeah, like, Howard Shore really got his start doing, wow, I like, actually in didn't, film scoring doing David Cronenberg I didn't know movies. that. Actually, yeah, The Brood's yeah. David Cronenberg's second major... Or second film. So, wow, that's yeah. really... We, we can skip over the details of the next bit. Cronenberg's middle period. Uh... Because I, I imagine at some point we'll come back to it. Maybe one of these films. Um, yeah. Because he made some, some cult classics. Um, the three movies specifically. He made Scanners. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you may not have seen Scanners, but you've almost definitely seen like the one clip from it where the guy's head explodes. <laughs> because it, it's become like a meme now. You've probably seen the, the gif of that. Um, you've got Videodrome. Yeah. And that's the one where he was, like, talking about, you know, he invented the internet or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then you have uh, a movie called The Dead Zone, which we've talked about before, mm-hmm. um, because it's a Stephen King adaptation, which we mentioned briefly in our episode about The Fog, because it was produced by the legend Deborah Hill. Right, okay, right. So, in the mid-1980s, Cronenberg got a script from, I don't know if you've heard, love him, legendary producer Dino De Laurentiis. Mm -hmm. He is a legend. He is a legend, indeed. Um, The script was based on a short story by Philip K. Dick. Um, I think you may know where I'm going with this, but 
if not, just this, bear with me. Is this Total Recall? Indeed it is. <laughs> this, this, it was actually... We Will Remember It For You Wholesale or something like that is the name of the story? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, and the script... Classic Philip K. Dick, like, extra long title. Yeah, exactly. Just more words than is necessary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that means it's science fiction. Yeah. Um, That's why, like, I think... It, it aside here, but like pretty much every movie based on a Philip K. Dick story is not have the same title <laughs> because it's like always way too long and wordy. And it's like, it's like Blade Runner is like a classic. It's called like Blade Runner, but the short story was called like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah, exactly. And it's honestly, like, his name is so bad. Blade yeah, Runner's so bad. much cooler. <laughs> yeah. It's like infinitely cooler. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this the script for way back, Total Recall, um, was written by the same pair of guys who wrote Alien. Right. One of whom, Dan O'Bannon, we also yes. discussed uh, in the Fog episode. Right, because he's a John Carpenter collaborator. Yep. Yeah, and he, uh, he, uh, he also didn't, he, he played um, Michael Myers. Wait, was he in the Fog? There no, was a he, character that was named... There was a character named Dan O'Bannon in The Fog, and Dan O'Bannon right. himself played Michael Myers, I believe, in Halloween. Anyway. Did he? I think so. Oh, gee, I can't, I can't keep it straight. Yeah, anyway, we're not talking about but it. But yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. He was definitely in Dark Star. Yes. John Carpenter's first film, first major motion picture. And also, Alien was ripped off of that. That's right, Alien. But we know that because, you know, Dan O'Bannon said so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ripped off. He, he actually R- Ripped off, but he also wrote it, so... <laughs> Self-plagiarism is a thing. Yeah. So for over a year, as we were talking about, for over a year, Cronenberg worked on Total Recall. Mm. Um, over the course of which he wrote, like, 14 scripts, 14 treatments. Um, of Total Recall? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. Do you do you know if they were like uh, making any of the props or anything while he was doing that? I don't know for sure. Just because I mean, a lot of them seem like kind of Cronenbergy. Yeah, but that's kind of what I was thinking, and I was also thinking like, like he was on it for a year. He had to have done more than just write scripts. Like, yeah, he definitely he did some concept work that I think. Yeah, probably they must have taken from him a bit i don't know i'm just speculating and i'm definitely like accusing them of stealing from david cronenberg but um well it's not stealing they paid him that's true um (laughs) so but apparently in an exchange between david cronenberg and dan o'bannon um o'bannon accused cronenberg of writing the script like the philip k dick novel like like the original story um, okay. To which Cronenberg responded, "Isn't that what we're trying? Yeah, isn't that the point to do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how that's like something to be accused of." Yeah, it's like excuse me. And then Dan O'Bannon's response was that, in fact, uh, that is not what they were trying to do. They were trying to make "quote unquote" Raiders of the Lost Ark, but on Mars. <laughs> what? All right. I mean, that's not what they made. No, that's. But... <laughs> 
that's not what it turned into. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Was was Schwarzenegger already cast when no, uh, no, when Gordon Bruce was like, doing this? Like, okay, we are going to talk about Total Recall at some point because it's actually super interesting, especially because at this point we're talking about like maybe 1985, early 1985, yeah. and uh, Total Recall was released in 1991. I yeah, think. so like so, quite a bit. Time more a lot of more a lot more stuff happened between yeah enough time and... for robocop to get made in between that <laughs> like uh like before paul verhoeven i suppose even went on to uh to do to probably be signed to do total recall yeah, he totally. finished the movie in the interim probably yeah yeah <laughs> um but anyway yeah we gotta talk about total recall at some point um yeah but not right now <laughs> yeah not right now <laughs> So then, um, it was at that point Cronenberg left the project, right? Just because he was having like uh, issues with Dan O'Bannon. Well, he was just like, "That's not the movie I'm trying to make." And uh, Dino right. De Laurentiis was like, you know, backing the the Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars like right. idea. Okay. So they just weren't jiving. They weren't trying to make the same movie, um, right? So he okay. jumped ship. So Cronenberg uh, receives a call from Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, who explains the plan for the fly? Right. Okay. Cronenberg finds the idea intriguing. He likes the he likes the the short story, so he's like, "Send me a send me a copy of the script." And then after reading the script, Cronenberg says that he had major issues, specifically with the dialogue and characters. Well, what was it to uh, uh, what's the word? <laughs> badinage re, re, badinage yeah it's too badinage <laughs> it was it was badinage um right. but he 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 liked the quote-unquote rethinking of the story with dna and computers um okay. as we mentioned earlier apparently cronenberg signed on uh with the condition that he get to entirely rewrite the script okay um, <laughs> as as we know he did as he did um, yeah. And he wanted $750,000. Okay. I'm trying to think, was that a lot for a director to be paid in 1986? I don't know. I really, yeah. I, I don't know. I thought it seemed low. That was my first number. Yeah. But more of my first number. I mean, that would definitely that seemed be low. low now, I think. Yeah, of course. I think it would be low, especially for like a, a high budget film like that. Or I yeah. guess it wasn't that high budget, you know what I mean? High profile. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if the whole film was $9 million, that's a fair amount. That's a huge chunk of it, exactly. That's kind yeah. of what I was thinking. Um, yeah. So I don't know. But uh, according to Stuart Kornfeld, um, basically the production was such a mess at this point that they were like desperate to get Cronenberg. Just deal with it. Yeah. Just, just make it happen. I mean, like Cronenberg's <laughs> the premier director in the genre. He was their first choice. They just like, yeah. it's a disaster. They need Cronenberg. So Cornfeld right. goes to the higher ups at Fox, I think, and he secures funding for a million dollars. Right. Was um, it also in uh, in Cronenberg's contract that it had to be shot in Toronto? <laughs> or was that just... Uh, I'm sure it was. Was that just coincidental? He, he, he didn't mention it like that. He didn't say it like that. He, I think the way Cornfeld said it was like, uh, Cronenberg likes to shoot with his own guys. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so that was probably like a stipulation. Um, it, it was probably a little bit cheaper for them to do it up here too. My first thought is that it would be, but I don't really know why. Um, uh, well, there are 
there were one of them is that uh, the tax credits, right? Um, tax credits and the Canadian dollar was fairly low at right, that time yeah, in comparison. Yeah. So Kornfeld says that they con- contacted Cronenberg's agent um, to counter offer a quarter of a million dollars more than what Cronenberg was asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kornfeld described it as the fastest deal he's ever seen made in Hollywood. <laughs> right. Because yeah. he's like, we want $750,000. And they're like, here's a million bucks. Please come Just do it. Just make it happen. <laughs> Please come make <laughs> Anything. this movie. <laughs> so I think... It was at about this time that uh, Howard Shore came into the mix. Um, So maybe we want to talk about Howard Shore a little bit now. Okay, yeah, sure. So let's talk a little bit about Howard fucking Shore. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right, so uh, Howard Shore, three-time Academy Award winner, Three-time Golden Globe winner, four-time Grammy winner. You probably know what at least one of them was. And, I mean, if you don't know who Howard Shore is, you will almost certainly recognize (laughs) something that he's written, which I will play for you right now. Oh, I can't wait. So as you probably know, that was from The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think I think that might be my favorite movie score ever. It's it's three movie fucking scores. All, all three of them. I I count them all together. Yeah, but it's like um just think about like how much fucking music that is to write. Three of three of the longest movies. <laughs> three of the longest movies. That's like that's like fucking nine hours of music. Yeah, not to mention like, you know. I mean, once again, like a lot of the same themes come up over and over again, but still you have to arrange like all yeah. of that and then you got to record it all as well, right? He was so prolific, Howard Shore. Yeah, like, he's done so many fucking movies. He's done like, so many movies and so many different kinds of movies like all of Cronenberg. I mean, he's movies. probably one of the most prolific Hollywood composers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, flat out. In 1996, he did one, two, three, four, five, six, seven scores 
Yeah, and he also conducted a lot of these uh, scores oh that he did as well, gosh. which I think is uh, extra, <laughs> very extra. That is very extra. And Dude, he's uh, done yeah. so much stuff. Like he he did Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yeah, just like random fuck. Like him and John Williams are probably like the biggest composers of all time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about like uh where he started. Yes, let's do. So as we probably mentioned, Howard Shore is another another guy from the T from T dot O from Toronto, Ontario. Uh, a Canadian, Canadian boy. Uh, as we, uh, it is our duty to inform you. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the citizenship. You have to do it. Yeah. So he, um, he grew up in Toronto, and uh, he uh, played all kinds of music. And uh, when he was growing up, he uh, became friends with a guy named Lorne Michaels, who's going to come up a bit later. Okay. <laughs> Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels, yeah. Okay, go on. Anyway, uh, he... Yeah, so Howard Shore, uh, actually, he played the saxophone in classic Canadian <laughs> rock band Lighthouse from 1969 to 1972. <laughs> um, and uh, I actually have a piece that I can play you so yes yeah, so this is uh, a big hit from lighthouse from their 1971 album <laughs> thoughts of moving on which uh howard shore on the sax howard shore on, on the on the alto saxophone here we go Taking it slow, out in the country, by Lighthouse. That... If if you're not from Toronto, you've probably never heard of Lighthouse. <laughs> like I don't know how popular they were outside of Canada, but I, uh, I have yeah. no, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, like looking through uh, record stores uh, in Toronto, you often find a lot of Lighthouse yeah. records. Yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I find I find that really interesting. It is um, hilarious. I mean, it speaks to his like uh, range. Yeah, it definitely speaks to his range, because, like, uh, like, I don't know, uh, a lot of people describe Lighthouse as, like, a jazz fusion band. I don't know if I would use that phrase. Mm. They're basically, like, a seven, like a early 70s rock band with some horns. 
Yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think to call them fusion is <laughs> is over overstating their jazziness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, we know we know uh, he's got some fucking jazz cred, Howard Shore, because I don't know if you've listened to the score for Naked Lunch. <laughs> yes. Well, is it Ornette Coleman who's also on that score? Oh, I'm not sure actually. Yeah, um, I think so. Let also, sorry, Lauren Michaels. <laughs> yeah, the founder of him? SNL, Lauren Michaels. Yeah. So, uh, as I was getting to... Sorry, I, just, um, I couldn't get over that. Yeah, so, um, from 1975 to 1980, uh, um, sorry, Howard Shore worked as the musical director of Saturday Night Live. I did not know that. Probably because his, uh, his, his friend Lorne, who was the creator of the show, hooked him up. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So, how, sorry, um, how did he know Lorne Michaels again? Uh, they were both from Toronto, and they went to summer camp together, apparently, when they were 13. <laughs> so they're just buddies, and he gave They're them... just buddies, yeah. Wow, that's bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> so, but basically, as I alluded to earlier, um, getting into film scoring, uh, basically what put Howard Shore out there was doing Cronenberg's movies. Right. So... Uh, he did pretty much every Cronenberg movie since The Brood, I believe, with the exception of The Dead Zone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wonder why he didn't do yeah, that one. So he, sorry? I wonder why he didn't do The Dead Zone. I don't know. He wasn't doing anything else. I don't know. I'm sure he was busy doing something. He, he seems to always be doing something. clearly always busy. <laughs> yeah, so... um. Yeah, uh, his first sort of brush with greatness, as it were, uh, <laughs> what kind of uh, broke through for him was uh, working, uh, doing the soundtrack for Silence of the Lambs. Oh yeah, you, I've, I, for some reason, I thought you were going to say big uh, with Tom Hanks, but go on. Well, yeah, but <laughs> that's, that's definitely, definitely up there. He did Silence of the but Lambs. But yeah, once again, with the range. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, having... Done like uh, big and <laughs> Silence of the Lambs and Silence of the Lambs and Naked Lunch in the same year. Naked Lunch and Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, you're right. It was, isn't it? Yeah, 1991. Yeah. But anyway, um, Silence of the Lambs, which won five Oscars, but none of them for Howard Shore. But uh, yeah, I don't know. He, I think he got his share. <laughs> his share of Oscars. Yeah. What did you say, five? You know, I feel like three of them is enough. Three. That's, yeah, he's got the hat trick. Yeah, the hat trick. <laughs> Let me just see if I can figure out quickly what uh, the movies were. That he won the Oscars for? Oh, they're all from Lord of the Rings. I should have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't really put two and two together there, but it's so obvious. <laughs> like, the the movie that Actually, won... I believe he didn't, he, he won two for, um... So he won. He didn't actually win any for two t- two towers. Ah, boo! He won two for Return of the King and one for Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, did he win Best Original Song? He did win Best Original Song for uh, Into the West uh, with oh, Annie Lennox. Interesting. 
I'm pretty sure The Return of the King has won more Oscars than any other film. Really? Yeah, like 13 Oscars. I don't, I think it. Is it? Jeez, fucking Christ. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was also nominated for uh, Hugo. But yeah, basically, uh, legend, Howard Shore. uh, Like, I just, I can't get over. It's hard to get over how, like, prolific this guy is. Like, honestly, I'm just scrolling through his filmography and, like, um, and like I said, 1996, he did like six movies, including yeah. Cronenberg. He did it. Okay. In 1996, he did uh, Crash for David Cronenberg. Yeah. He also did that Tom Hanks um, movie, That Thing You Do, which I really enjoy. I've um, never actually seen that. Oh, you have to watch a great movie. Um, starring and uh, directed by Tom Hanks. He did Striptease, Andrew Bergman. He did... He did a score for uh, a Ron Howard movie, um, but apparently it was unused. Mm. What else? He did High Fidelity. Yeah, it just keeps going. <laughs> like, oh my god. Like, how does he have enough time in the day? I don't know. And he's done every Scorsese movie since Gang of New York, Gangs of New York. Yeah. Or not everyone. Almost all of them. And he's done video games too. Oh my god. Yeah. I know, it's this guy. Oh, he's so busy. How do you write that many, like, honestly, like, how do you write that many scores in yeah. one year? Also, uh, just want to point out, received the most important award, the Order of Canada. Oh, yeah, that's higher than any, any, any award Hollywood could give I mean, you. I believe that's pretty much the highest award you can get as a, uh, from the government. Yeah, from the, from, from the Canadian government, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it, it, it it's kind of like the Canadian equivalent to a knighthood, not that it is at all the same. <laughs> it's kind of similar. It's kind of similar, yeah. Does Is Cronenberg, or is Howard Shore knighted as well? Howard Shore? Uh, no, you can't actually be a knight if you're Canadian. Oh, if you're not. Oh, that's stupid. You can be KBE, but you can't be Sir. Mm. Is, is Cronenberg... Uh... Order of Canada? I just want to point. I'm sure he he must be. Uh, no, I think he. Oh, Order of On. What? Oh no, yeah, he is Order of Canada. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, one of the other things that uh, uh, Howard Shore found time to do was write an opera version of The Fly. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did read about that, but I, it confused me, so I had to stop reading about it. <laughs> yeah, so um I have I have this uh, little little quote. He says he actually uh he saw it as an opera from the beginning, actually. <laughs> I mean, fair so, enough, yeah. So um he says, uh, well the fly I saw as an opera. Of course I did years later write it as an opera, but the stories had to me this tragic opera feeling to it. I wanted to do a symphonic score at that point. I think it was 1986. I was actually the first fully integrated symphonic score that I wrote for a film. Did a film a few years earlier in New York that used the symphony orchestra called Nothing Lasts Forever. And so I felt I was ready to do, ready now for a full approach to doing that. The score... Before The Fly was the Videodrome, I believe. It was almost a purely electronic score. The Fly was written in that opera mode, that, and I became very interested in opera at that time. I was going to the <laughs> Metropolitan Opera a lot, and it influenced me. Uh, it, it, sorry, it, 
and was being influenced by it in a way. Even the way that the recordings were done. I was setting up my orchestra recording like it was the Metropolitan Opera. I was setting the orchestra as if it was the pit and recording in surround now, left, right, center, and making things in a specific way. Like the theater, like the opera. And imagining the proscenium or the stage to feel like the film. Of course, being in the cinema and feeling like the orchestra is playing right under the projection or behind it. So I started to incorporate those techniques, not only to writing and how the pieces were constructed, but also specifically in the recording. That's fascinating. So, yeah. I, I think that was interesting. That's, a, that's certainly a, not the uh, first thing I would think of when I uh, would be approached to write The Fly. No, but, no, know. but totally, it totally makes it, sense It totally to works me. out, and yeah, it's, I can totally see that aspect in it now. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it totally makes sense as an opera. And the fact that... Um, he actually went ahead and did it. He did it, but also I was reading that like it's all <laughs> like original. He did the score from the... Yeah. It's like a totally original like musical. Yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe uh, we'll see if we can find a clip from that and splice that in afterwards. Yeah, that's a good idea. I guess that's that's Howard Shore. That's 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 Howie there. Um, uh, do I have any? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just leave you uh, with a uh, with a song that he wrote for Lighthouse. Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> Gives you the right to be 
until we uh, continue with uh, where are we at right now? It's it's Trek, and that's the end of the. Uh, oh, that's the end of part one. Part one. All right, shall we? Let's do it. Welcome to Six Degrees of Star Trek. This is the segment that nobody asked for, but you're getting for getting wow. it anyway. Uh, <laughs> this is where we connect people who have been in this film to Star Trek via their filmographies, or I guess that. Yeah. So how 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 difficult was this film? This was not that difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it wasn't as easy as it could have been right well i was kind of thinking there might be some well i mean there's a lot there of were actually no direct connections that i could find well that's kind of what i was thinking is you don't have any of the actors and cronenberg's people yeah. are cronenberg's people so well that's the thing though cronenberg's people a lot of these connections are through cronenberg oh really yes okay yeah so this is actually kind of a cool episode and i get to cover something that i wanted to talk about uh, <laughs> about star trek fucking right so uh, we yeah we get to do more Star Trek that almost happened. Oh, that's awesome! I love Star Trek uh, that almost happened. Yeah, well, I mean, this actually kind of really close to being happened. It kind of happened. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck. But we'll that get means. to it. Uh, anyway, so uh, the first connection is through David Cronenberg. Now we kind of mentioned earlier the movie Naked Lunch. Yes. So the star of Naked Lunch is none other than the legend, the legendary Peter Weller. RoboCop. <laughs> Peter Weller, known for such classic movies as RoboCop. And he, uh, I guess, was a guest star on two episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, uh, which is Terra Prime and the one right after that, which I can't remember the title many of whom think is the real season finale of Star Trek Enterprise because they, they don't like the uh, the last episode, These Are the Voyages, because it... Well, there are some issues with that episode. Uh, <laughs> I'm mostly, not, I... it's kind of like an episode of Enterprise inside an episode of TNG, which is really weird. Oh, I don't care for that at all. Yeah, and they, they brought in uh, Riker and shit. And the whole episode mm. takes place in the holodeck. It's really weird. Fucking T. You just mentioned so many things I don't <laughs> like about Star Trek in a row. Uh, TNG, Riker specifically, <laughs> and the holodeck. All in that order are my least favorite yeah. things about but Star anyway, Trek. But anyway, that's not the episode we're talking about. We're talking about the two episodes before that. Okay. So Peter Weller uh, plays like the head of this terrorist organization who like uh, really hates aliens and like <laughs> uh he wants them to all leave the the earth okay and he threatens to like blow up mars or something like that <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's it's a it's an interesting two-parter uh it kind of wraps up the uh the uh the a lot of the threads that were being explored in the late stages of star trek enterprise and sorry it's you said season finale but did you mean like series finale series finale that's what i meant to say series finale right yes. 
I kind of figured that's what you meant, but I just want so to So that's clarify. why people, yeah, sorry, series finale. That's why people were so pissed about the, the yeah. actual series finale. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, I would be, gonna... oh my god, if Voyager ended with fucking... Anyway, we won't yeah, get Yeah, Riker it. showed up. Anyway, speaking of Voyager, <gasps> that brings us to our next connection. Yes! Also through David Cronenberg. Yes! Uh, through his 1988 film, Dead Ringers. Okay. So Dead Ringers is a... Uh, Another fucked up movie about psychological um, thriller. Yeah, it's a psychological thriller about two uh, unhinged gynecologists. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, in that movie is uh, an actress, a Canadian actress uh, named Jeanviev Bougeau. Okay. Um. So, she in Star Trek Voyager played Captain Janeway. Kate? Now you might be asking yourself, but, but, wait, didn't Kate Mulgrew play Captain Jadeway? Yes, she did. And Kate... if you're not asking yourself that, I don't know how you've gotten through this, <laughs> this entire uh, section of the podcast. I don't know if you're still, I don't know why you're still listening. They turned this off weeks ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, Kate Mulgrew auditioned for uh, the role of Captain Janeway. And nailed Sergeant it. Roger, and she didn't get the part. Fucking tragedy. Jean-Vierre Bougeau did. Uh, what is happening and here? She, uh, she went to film the very first episode. And they began filming. And after one day of shooting, she quit. Um, she wasn't strong enough to be Jane. And there, there were a lot of things going on. I think one of the reasons was uh, a lot of. Uh, I, I, I think the um, they were deciding that her accent didn't really work very well. Her, was she French Canadian? She, she is indeed French Canadian uh, uh, from Montreal, Quebec, the source of uh, fantastic captains of Star Trek history. <laughs> Uh, Shatner, also famously from Montreal. Uh. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, yeah, so she had a, a pretty thick uh, Quebecois accent, and actually on uh, on on YouTube you can find uh, the the actual part that they filmed. Well, I will be looking into that definitely. And it's it's like the first episode, but uh, yeah, it's uh, you can hear her being like, "Oh yeah, red alert, uh, do it," you know. Adjust our course to match. Hi, Captain. The Cardassians claim they forced the Maquis ship into a plasma storm where it was destroyed. But our probes haven't picked up any debris. The plasma storm might not leave any debris. We'd still be able to pick up a resonance trace from the warp core. Captain, I'm reading a coherent tetrion beam scanning us. Origin, Mr. Kim. I'm not sure. There's also a displacement wave moving towards us. On screen. And uh, Janeway has her very... Well, it, they, she was still Janeway, but it was, uh, wasn't Kate Mulgrew yet. It's not Kate Jane. Mulgrew has her very... Very... Uh, she enunciates, <laughs> shall we say. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> She's great. I love yeah. Janeway. I love Kate Mulgrew. Yeah, Kate Mulgrew's pretty fucking great. <laughs> But anyway, that was our connection that sort of happened, almost happened, kind of did happen. <laughs> That's a good one. Anything that invo in, uh, involves Voyager is a good one in my book. And then even yeah. more so if it involves Janeway. Yeah. 
<laughs> but anyway, um, so the next connection we have goes through Goldblum. <gasps> no, was he? No, he no, wasn't in it. Unfortunately, no, right? yeah, he no. was not in Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, I really wish he was. Yeah. <laughs> could that. still happen. Could still happen. I'm sure it will still happen. Yeah, I don't know about that. But anyway, <laughs> he was in uh, the uh, 1980, 19, sorry, 1998 uh, animation, The Prince of Egypt. <laughs> what? That's not what I was expecting you to say. But yeah, he was in that. How does that connect to Star Trek? He played Aaron. Um, and. You know who else was in that? So Patrick Stewart. <gasps> no. Who obviously was in Star Trek, you know? Yeah. Was yeah. also in that movie. Would have made it. He played uh, the Pharaoh Seti, who was the father of Ramses. <laughs> he has a good, he has a good Pharaoh voice. Yeah. But like in a Shakespearean way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything he does is in a Shakespearean way. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so I normally only do three connections. We're going to add the, another one just because I think it's kind of interesting. Okay. Because it brings up this movie that Jeff Goldblum was in that's just so strange to me. Uh, there's a sort of forgotten horror movie from the 70s called The Sentinel. And it's, it's not actually that interesting of a movie. It's actually kind of bad. But... Uh, Jeff mm -hmm. Goldblum, it was an early role for Jeff Goldblum, and there were a lot of people in this movie who, like, you know, went on to become, like, fairly well-known, or were already well-known. Right. So, uh, I mean, Chris Sarandon was in this movie, uh, Eli Wallach was in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Walken was in this movie. Um, Jeff Goldblum. Jerry Orbach. Yeah. It just keeps going, but uh, anyway, Berringer. what we care about is that uh, Nana Visitor was in this movie, who is obviously played Major Kira on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. So there's that connection. There you go. But yeah, it's a it's a very strange uh, sort of kind of bad horror movie from 1977. The Sentinel. Yeah. Yeah, The Sentinel. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what it's about. It's about like a bunch of. Um, it's like about uh, this weird house. Uh, that has like a portal to hell in the basement. That's compelling. Yeah, and there are like a bunch of nuns that like live in this Oh, come place. on, that sounds awesome. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah check it out because it's worth watching. It's, 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 it's a, it's, it's an interesting watch, but it's not particularly good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that has been six years of Star Trek for this installment. That was a pretty good one. I hope you, you got uh, unmade uh, or partially made Voyager. You got fucking Peter Weller. You got Robocop. Yeah. Fuck, fuck yeah, yeah. Really, honestly, like, you can't argue with any of that. You got Patrick Stewart as a biblical pharaoh. Yeah, come on. <laughs> you know, like, how can it get better than really, that? Really, how could it get any better? Yeah. All right. Well, that, I think, brings us to the end of uh, part one. Of end of part one yeah of our um our installment on the fly yeah um which is i don't know if we mentioned this but this was our third installment in our monster trilogy no we didn't mention that but yes we yeah. at first it was incidental and then it was on purpose and then it was two monster movies in a row and then we're like okay we're gonna do a third one three monster so movies this so this is yeah, yeah completing the monster movie 
trilogy. All right. Let's, uh, uh what am I going to play here? 